0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We are here to offer leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a scorching spring morning here in the capital is Alan Brooks. Alan is the head teacher at Fulston Manor School in Sittingbourne, Kent. Um, Alan, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the show today.
1: Oh, good morning. It's a, it's a pleasure.
0: Good morning, Alan. Thanks again for joining us. Certainly is a lovely day for it. Spring has sprung, it seems, in the UK. Um, And even though there are sort of some real green shoots starting to appear now and we seem to be moving out of social restrictions. I feel a good place to start here would be to address the elephants in the room and that's the fact that we are still under some form of restrictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic and have been in some way shape or form be that full lockdown or otherwise for the best part of the last 14 months now. Now um, it has affected the education sector significantly this whole saga. Um, so for you and your school, Alan, how have the last sort of 14 months been by and large, would you say?
1: I, I think it, it quite clearly has been a, an enormously stressful time for, for, for all schools. In addition to being the uh, the executive head at Paulsford Manor, I'm also chair of the Kent Association of Head Teachers. So mm. I've got a, a pretty clear idea over the last 14 months as to what it's been like for, for heads right across the county there are almost 600 schools in Kent primary secondary and so on and the the picture is pretty similar that heads uh, school leaders have been under enormous pressure with constantly changing guidance constantly changing situations having to respond to things that they never got trained for this is not something that obviously we came into the profession expecting and heads have responded magnificently but they have been they have been asked very very difficult questions by what has taken place
0: I suppose resilience is very much a buzzword across the sector for school staff and also for pupils as well. Um, But given just how stressful it's been, as you mentioned there, just how difficult has this period been from a mental health point of view across the whole of the school community in your view?
1: You're correct in saying that it has put an enormous pressure on on the mental health of, of staff and, of course, of students and other members of the uh, the school communities. It's been relentless. I think that has been one of the the, the key problems that the head teachers, particularly if they've had. Maybe two or three days off in the entire year at a time. That's all they've had because there's been one thing following another. That was the exam debacle last summer, the mm. testing at Christmas, the stop start of lockdowns. So it has been the relentless nature of it that heads have had to cope with. It's also been the uncertainty, the fact that very frequently information or guidance has come out late or it's come out and been contradictory. And heads have been left to respond to that. And that is, that is hard for people. I think uncertainty for students when they're saying, have I got exams to do? Have I not got exams to do? All of these things have added to that, and there has clearly been a a real mental health dimension to this. Um, Kent Association of Heads have put up a well-being group. We've offered coaching. We've offered all sorts of support to heads from colleagues. That's been important to them so they don't feel isolated. The isolation of headship can at times be overplayed, but I think this year, More than ever, it's been important that we've had a support network put around our colleagues.
0: And even though it has been such a stressful and exhausting experience for school leaders, in some ways, are they coming out of this tough experience stronger for the 14 months that they've had, or has it just been a case of it's been an ordeal, I never want to go through anything like this ever, ever again?
1: I don't think they're coming out of it stronger at the moment, I think they're coming out of it hopefully coming out of it, completely exhausted at the moment. But a lot of things have been learned. A lot of heads I think have relished to some extent the the autonomy that they've been given. We've tried as an association very much to, to give heads that feeling that they will make the right decisions at the right time for their own organizations, that they are best placed to do it. A lot of the advice coming out from the Department for Education has been less than helpful, but if heads have got that feeling of confidence in themselves, in their decision-making abilities, then they can go forward and do that. So I think a lot of heads perhaps have found themselves tested this year in a way perhaps they've never been tested before and the fact they've succeeded through this should give them great confidence going forward
0: and just talking about those lessons from the pandemic what are some of the key learnings that have been taken away from this last 14 months do you think
1: i think if you if you look at it purely from a from a curriculum from an academic point of view I think a lot of lessons have been learned around around remote learning. I think that the, uh, the use of digital technology has improved during the course of the last 14 months. I think that heads have known who they can rely on. I think they've appreciated that. I think that's been very helpful to them. I think the, the central importance of schools, and I mean, we, we we will go on about this all the time, but the importance of education, not just as a vehicle for transmitting knowledge, but as a support structure for communities, for whole communities, for families, particularly those families from the more deprived backgrounds in the more deprived areas, that people hopefully have valued more than previously the role that schools play in the pastoral support, in the care of young people and in the way in which they play a part within their local community. So I think, I think the role of schools perhaps has been recognised more than sometimes it has been in the past.
0: And of course, when it comes to that sort of digital side of things, digital poverty and other inequalities have been exposed and really laid bare by the pandemic, haven't they? And if technology is going to be more prevalent in our daily lives and within education, closing that gap is going to be incredibly important. And indeed on that point, um, a recent report by the Sutton Trust charity actually showed that 15% of teachers um, have seen over a third of their pupils not having access to such smart devices that they've needed to carry out online learning during lockdown. So that is something that really is going to have to be addressed going forward, isn't it?
1: That is a major challenge, you're absolutely right, particularly during the first lockdown when there was a a huge lack of digital devices for significant numbers of the the student population. It's not, however, just about putting a device in somebody's hands, it's also about their, their home environment. If you've got several people in a very crowded accommodation and you have one digital device, how does that work? How do you make certain that they've got proper internet access? And I think it has shone a spotlight on all sorts of aspects of deprivation, which we have known within the profession existed before the attainment gap has been a a very stubborn gap to close for all sorts of reasons. And the hope is that the spotlight that has been shone will illuminate this in a way that will enable us to improve the system as it was before rather than just going back to where we were previously i think i think we get we worry about a catch up curriculum or a recovery curriculum we don't want to just recover back to where we were before we want this to be better it is it is Unfortunate is is a euphemistic term that the government last week chose to invest so little money in the recommendations about recovery and catch-up. We will keep pressing to get more funding into that so that we can help these families who have suffered for generations through lack of educational opportunity and they do need the support that we can give them. Mm.
0: And just when we're talking about this catch-up curriculum, speaking of that word catch-up, a lot was made ahead of this academic year, restarting in September 2020, about that lost education and catch-up learning that was needed from sort of the interruption in March 2020 onwards. Um, how has it been sort of getting to grips with that this year and dealing with that lost time? And I think it's also become quite obvious that it's going to be a longer-term fix rather than a short-term one, this.
1: Well, I I do hope that that message comes very clearly across, that this is a a long-term, three-year, five-year program. I also hope the message comes across that this is not just about putting an extra half hour of English in a week or science in in a week. This is catch-up in terms of the whole child. It's a, it's a, a whole curriculum, has to look at it, we need to look at more counsellors in schools we need to look at the mental health issues that have arisen or have been exacerbated by the pandemic we need to look at the fact that there is no point putting curriculum content into young people if we haven't got their their mental well-being sorted out and their their emotions sorted out and that that a lot of heads have found particularly challenging it's not necessarily that more young people have experienced mental health issues over the last 12 months. It's that those that have those issues have found them magnified and amplified, and they are in a much more serious position now than they were at the start of the lockdown. It's not just education that will solve this. More investment in children's social services in other support networks are going to play a key role in this, and we have to take this seriously if we are going to move it on. Having said all that, I wouldn't like to run away with the idea that some headlines have given us of a lost generation who will never recover. Mm. Children are generally very resilient. They, they will recover, but they will need assistance from us to enable them to do that.
0: Absolutely right. And I guess that sort of period, as we've talked about between March and September, where it was all essentially remote education contact has been a very aggravating period for those pupils that have suffered from such issues because they need that in-person contact in school, especially for pastoral purposes. And it just shows, doesn't it, that doing everything remotely is quite difficult. It's not a one size fits all approach and sometimes it can be harder from a distance when you're teaching to pick up on certain cues towards maybe deep line mental health issues?
1: School, schools did a, did, a, did a fantastic job in, in, in keeping in touch with their vulnerable families, in regular phone calls, in, in trying to work with social services to make certain that children didn't slip through the net. But you are right that actually that isn't a substitute for that daily contact, for that personal contact, when quite often school staff can, can pick up warning signs, can pick up concerns simply by seeing a child. That, that's not possible to do over an internet connection. It's not possible to do via telephone. So those are the areas that I don't think there are any substitutes for. And, and it's important when we say we will, we will do better with digital work, that's fine, but it's not a replacement.
0: Mm. I think that's very right. It's important to acknowledge that it isn't, as we've already said, a one-size-fits-all approach is not going to be just a magic bullet solution to this. And education in some way shape or form as it was before but with a different revamped curriculum has had to come back and over the course of the next sort of 12 months as hopefully we do leave social restrictions behind just before we wrap things up alan um, what are your hopes for education at large and what changes would you like to see coming in i suppose first and foremost one thing you want is a bit more clarity on how exams are going to be working
1: i say th- i think we would Welcome clarity. One of the great problems that we've had is the, is the last minute announcements that have that have bedevilled the last fourteen months and made planning very very difficult. We would clearly back the uh, the recent report from Sir Kevin Collins talking about significant amounts of funding going into schools and funding that covers not just curriculum but covers all of those other aspects we've talked about further, and something that has a three to five year shelf life to it. The the, the stopgap, knee-jerk planning that unfortunately does bedevil education and has done for many, many years needs to go. So we need to know about funding. We need to know in advance about funding so that we can plan to use it properly. We need to know in advance about plans for exams so we can prepare students properly. A lot of the stress students suffered through the course of the last year was around uncertainty, not knowing what was going to happen next. Clarity is needed, funding is needed, and a focus on the pastoral care and the well-being of students rather than just on a, a narrow curriculum definition.
0: Mm. And let's certainly hope that we start to see those changes implemented. And um, I'm writing, saying that at the end of this academic year, Alan, it will be um, the end of your sort of teaching career, won't it? You're due to uh, retire in August, is that right?
1: Well, I have. I've done 45 years. I think that's I think that's probably indulgent to go any further than that. So. It's it's been a fantastic privilege. I've I've loved doing it. I'm not certain I wanted to end in quite the way that the last 12 to 14 months has, has enabled me to finish. Mm. But uh, I, there are there are wonderful wonderful school leaders out there who will who will carry the banner on and do much better undoubtedly than I have managed.
0: Well, I wish you all of the, uh, the luck and happiness in the world uh, when it comes to retirement, Alan, and thank you ever so much again for your time in joining us today. Um, it's been a real eye-opener for me, and certainly um, I'm sure for the listeners um, as well, just getting that little glimpse as to what's been going on within education at Falston Manor. And also, since we're not quite out of the woods with this whole situation yet, but we're sort of edging closer, do continue to take care and stay safe, of course, with all that is still going on in the world.
1: Thank you very much indeed.
0: It was a pleasure welcoming Alan Brooks, headteacher at Falston Manor School in Sittingbourne, onto today's show. And coming up next on the programme, we'll be keeping it very much educational because former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord David Blunkett, will be joining us on the show. He'll be offering his take on the events of the last 14 months, as well as his hopes for the weeks ahead. That
2: is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome.
3: Staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, ten thousand or twenty five thousand, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being, and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world, and being able Mm -hmm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time I think that with some hiccups and mistakes they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances.
2: And you're absolutely right in a in a liberal uh democracy that we live in it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um
3: well the the UK and um and the US and to some extent to uh, the Scandinavian countries not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words,
2: This has been the
0: Leaders' Council Podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.